Okay, first of all, welcome everyone. It's just nice to get together for any purpose, not just to uh, commemorate the person who shaped our lives so deeply and to gather around the campfire and to share stories. And um, I think what, what deeply characterized Rav Amital, and I think what we all remember so fondly and so profoundly are the stories. And I was asking myself this morning, why are the stories so formative? And there are a lot of stories in the yeshiva, a lot of legends. I find that with Rav Lechtenstein, the stories tend to be mythological stories. You know, I remember the time Rav Lechtenstein climbed the beanstalk, or I remember the time, because somehow we feel that regular prose is insufficient to capture the magnitude of who Rav Lechtenstein was. So these stories, these outlandish stories that we had, was the only way we could convey who this person was, this outsized person who live beyond the normal narrative and the normal prose. But I think with Ravamital, the stories played a different function. And it's not incidental that the most memorable part of Ravamital convincing that first class to come to Yeshiva were the two stories he told them. The famous baby story, the crying baby story, which has become, of course, the DNA of the Yeshiva. And the other story, which I'm not sure is, is popular, but he told the story about the chassid who got thrown into jail, and the Rebbe came and bailed him out, and finally, 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 at a certain point, the Rebbe doesn't want to bail him out anymore, and the chassid starts, in, or the Rebbe's son becomes very harsh towards him, chassid starts crying and says, you don't realize I'm a ganadich ben aganav, I'm not a tzaddik, you're, you're a Rebbe for tzaddikim, what you want to do is rebuke me, your father who was a Rebbe for a shayim, and Rebbe said, I want to open each year for a shayim, it's a lesser known story. But I don't want to tell the story now. I was just referring to the story. But it was, it was fascinating to me that the genesis, the Big Bang of the yeshiva, was formed because of two stories. It became legendary. And I, I think that with Rav Amital, it reflects the fact that he grounded us, and stories are much more grounded. Abstract ideas, they're powerful. And they tend to be systemic because they're categories, they're concepts, you can apply them in an associative fashion. They're not just limited to the context. We all know that about Briscoe Lambdas, when we're able to develop a category from a halacha, the definition of Kenyan, the definition of Yerusha, the definition of Kedushin, we think can take that category and, and, and export it elsewhere. That's the power of systemic thought. And I think we all got that systemic thought from Rav Lichtenstein who took us up to the heavens and gave us very abstract thinking. But the danger is, Applicationally, do you apply it to your life in a real way? Does it just you be an abstract? Does it filter down to your subconsciousness? Does it really affect your identity and your existence? And I think Rav Amita was was very grounding in that respect because he was so human, because he was so grounded, because he demanded that we not ignore our humanity, that we concede and acknowledge our humanity and the limitations that humanity brought with it. Not just uh, not just a, a general a general platitude, but that we should embrace the limitations of who we are as humans. And if you want to, it's a very, very quick um, phrase. hope it's not an empty phrase. I think Ravaran challenges to soar like angels. And Rav Amital reminded us that it's all right to be humans. And I think those are two very important poles in our life. Without our ambition and our drive and our ability to extend ourselves beyond limits, we end up, we end up courting mediocrity. But if we're too demanding of ourselves and too strict and too unforgiving of ourselves, we become unforgiving of others, and then um, we, we, we're crushed, and we crush other people with those weight of expectations. And I feel that the stories for Vamital 
which is very, very human stories, um, human beings in common, by definition, ideas aren't human-based ideas, or concepts or abstract stories about human beings interacting with one another. And I think it was a very silent way of grounding us in our humanity. The other idea that I was thinking about just today as I was musing over Ravami telling the stories is I, I think that when he told stories either about himself or about people, we realized that the backstory to his stories were riveting. Namely, he told a story... But we know that the story of his life, the larger trajectory, what the life he lived was historical and was reflective of the 20th century. And it was reflective of the 20th century in very, very different settings, in the pre-world of Europe, in the disaster and the catastrophe of the Holocaust, and then the reconstruction of, um, of, of the state of Israel. He used to tell us, I was in a cheder in Hungary, and then I was in a concentration camp in Central Europe. And then I formed the Independence War. And then ultimately I stood at the Suez Canal. And you really felt as if this was a trajectory that was running through all the major events of the 20th century. But it wasn't just severed from it. He very much was a part of that century, relating to that century. I, I, I think you can pretty much take Rav Lichtenstein out of the 20th century and just reinsert him, reimplant him in any other century, and he would make sense. Obviously, you'd have to adjust, and you'd have to adapt, and your differences, and he's a product of modern thinking and modern secularization. But you could rig it so that Ravarn could be an 18th, sometimes he sounded like a 19th century <laughs> Matthew Arnold. So that Ravarn really did sound like he belonged from a different century. But Ravamital was really about our century. Everything he spoke about, and in particular, the desire to reinvent and reimagine the modern yeshiva with the understanding, which was heretical when you think about it, that the old yeshiva models just weren't sufficient. Essentially, that was the statement. We can't just continue business as usual, business as normal. It wasn't just taking the old yeshiva model and wedding it to new ideas such as Hezder or Tanakh. was reimagining, reimagining rabbis without the jackets and ties, reimagining yeshiva without smoking, whatever, whatever it was, whether it was highfalutin issues or more grounded issues. So Ravamita was very much, not just the stories he told us, but we felt as if he was living a story, a storyline of our century, and he was interacting with the major issues that were occurring to our people and to humanity. Hezidus, everyone to please mute themselves, or uh, Rabbi Friedman, could you mute mute everyone except for me? Uh, Thank you. And I think the implicit message was, the relevance of Torah to the world around us. I think we all feel very, very deeply that everything that happens in our world, not just in the Sefer, not just in the Ketzels, and not just in the Shulchan Aruch, but everything that happens in our world, there is a Torah view to that. And we want to try to articulate that view. And I think we take it for granted sometimes, but then you realize not everyone processes it that way. Some people are completely disinterested in the world around them, which is fair. Some people are interested, but the manner in which their Torah experience comments on that world is very, very marginal. We feel in our heart of hearts that we can excavate a Ramban and apply it to social justice or apply it to monument, uh, statue, whatever issues are. And I find myself doing a lot of this and thinking back and saying, why do I even think that? And why do I sense that so few other people outside of our orbit? Because I think it was tacit in Ravamital's 
backstory, not just the story he was telling us, but the context within which those stories, the personal stories of the fictitious stories of all these personalities in Europe, the Mendelas and the Rabbanim, and the, there's a real story going on behind the story. So I like to just share stories with people and hear what stories touched you, the stories he told us or the stories about him. But I, I just feel it was important to take a step back and say, well, why are stories so formative? With Ravamita, we tell our own stories, but again, they tend to be the exaggerated, inflated, as if we're all homers just trying to capture the war between Athens and Greece. And the only way I can capture it is by telling some story of great heroics. And we exaggerate it because he led an exaggerated life. So I think the Ravaran stories are very, very different than the Ravamitel stories. Not just content, but function. Not just the content is different. The Ravaran stories are always him winning the gold medal in the Olympics while he's finishing shots. And the Ravamitel story is always being a human being. But the function of the stories, I think, was always, always very different. Ravaran was just grasping for story. How can we even describe this person? Let's tell a story. The Ravamitel, I think the stories conveyed a sense of, well, that's, I, I could be in that story. I, I could have been that story. That story fits me. I don't think we all imagine ourselves in the Ravaran stories. I think we can imagine ourselves in the Ravamitel stories. We can put ourselves in. So what are your stories? Love to hear them. I'll tell one story from a summer that I was a counselor on a, on Machach Ba'aretz. Machach Ba'aretz at the time uh, spent a week in yeshiva. And uh, one of the features was they got a Q&A with the Rosh Yeshiva, one each. At the time, there were two Rosh Yeshiva. And um, they had a Q&A with Rav Amital. And we didn't filter the questions in any way. The kids were able to ask what they want. And Rav Amital comes. In the room. So he's like, why don't you come up and translate? You could tell the, the group of American kids uh, wasn't so fluent in Hebrew. And so I was there to translate the following exchange. Uh, a kid asks him whether what Rav Amital's view was of uh, co-education. And uh, Rav Amital said to him, a few years ago, I visited a school in New Jersey called Frisch. And uh, they asked me that question. And I said to them, It's not the learning that's the problem. It's what happens after school, after class. And the kid followed up. And he said, Is it okay for secular classes? And the way he phrased it, he was implying well, obviously not for the Judaic studies classes, but maybe for the secular classes. And Rav Amital said to him, no difference. You can have a, uh, a female teacher even for, your, for some Limudei Kodesh studies. So the kid, incredulous, couldn't believe it, says to him, would you have a female teach in your yeshiva? And Rav Amital looked at him and said, when the Chamalevowitz was alive, she taught here. And... Uh, and I got from the whole exchange was, uh, first of all, a way to talk to an incredulous teenager being a punk to a Rosh Yeshiva. But also it was, he had conviction in all his answers. He wasn't looking to give uh, the popular answer, neither about, uh, you know, co-education, 
and he was he was he said these are my convictions these are my he told and he was willing to present it he didn't sugarcoat it for anyone and uh, i really took a lot from uh, that exchange that i was part of translating for for the students to understand I think you taught us what? Can anyone hear me? I think you taught us a lot of. I think you taught us a lot of honesty. And to be honest, you can't sugarcoat. You have to express your views, and it won't always gain you a popularity. <laughs> I'll I'll share just my actually my very very first exposure to Ravamital when I first came to uh, Gush. For whatever reason, someone put me all the way in the front of the Beit Midrash. And I was sitting like literally like on top of Ravamital practically. Um, and, you know, I don't know anything. I'm a Shanalov kid who just happened to show up there. And uh, I noticed that he was always humming. Every time he would walk past my desk, he was always like, you know, humming songs. And like, you know, or he would walk very slowly. Everyone knows Rav Luchenstein obviously walked with a certain power, you know, carrying a hundred svarim and walking faster. You can't keep up with him. I don't know, Ravamital walked very slowly, sort of moved over to his desk. He always was humming back and forth. And uh, he would just look at me and smile. Um, every time he passed me, he would just look at me and smile as he was humming. Um, and as a young kid who just got to yeshiva, who obviously had uh, zero um, confidence, I would say, in any ability to ask him questions or speak to him uh, or engage with him obviously that changed you know as time was on it was so heartwarming and it was such a warmth that i still remember it and it it, it really had an impact on me during that very very beginning of uh of my time in yeshiva they, my my chavrusa changed and i actually got moved back and then when i came to shanabat i actually was right back sitting right next to him i used to learn with um with um with um lifshitz uh, what was lifshitz's first name um, I don't know if it is. Yaakov, thank you. So Yaakov Lishes is my Shanabat Chavruta, and we sat right next to Ramitan. At that point, we would actually ask him questions and talk to him much more. But I'll never forget being a young Shanalov kid and uh, having him smile at me all the time, uh, always like with a hum, always with a, 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 a you know, just a, a pun him that uh, really was very warm, that um, was my first impression of him. And just totally different than my first impression of Wilkinstein, obviously on so many levels. Um, but uh, my first memory. Now, I'll change the continent for you and bring you to Manchester in UK. So, good to see you guys. In my second year, I was approached by by an Israeli, didn't know who he was, some ginger-haired Israeli, and spoke to me about going to Cape Town, of all places, for the Kolel Tsioni program. Here I was, an unassuming Brit. I was going to go off traveling the other part of the world with a group of Israelis. And I said yes, and I, I left Yeshiva probably sometime after Shavuot. If I'm going to go away from home for a third year, let me spend some time back at home with my, with my family before going away to another part of the world for, for another year away from family. And I don't know why, but Rav Amital came to the UK shortly after I came home. And I thought, amazing, I, I've left Yeshiva, but the Rosh Yeshiva is coming to the UK, coming to London. So I went to hear him speak. And he walked in and he saw me. And the very, 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 very
and I was totally thrown. Like the Rosh Hashiva knew who I was. The, the, the contingency of Brits, I don't know if it's changed today, but back in, when Seth and I were in Yeshiva, back in the late 1990s, the Brits were just, you know, we were a very small contingency in, in a sea of chutznikim of Americans. The MTA were their own confined, defined units. And you no, know, we kept to ourselves, we, you know, we interacted, but we were very, a small minority and definitely didn't imagine that the Rosh Yeshiva would have a clue who we were. And the fact that he walked into the room, smiled, his beaming smile, and paid attention to someone who clearly he remembered from being in the Bet Midrash. And it made me feel incredible. And I definitely think that sense of humanity and seeing, transmitting a love of his students to all of us, regardless of whether we were literally in the front row or metaphorically in the front row of Shir Klali and being able to follow what he was saying made no difference. You know, there we were. We were part of his yeshiva. He was proud of us. And he made me at that moment so proud of being in the yeshiva that when I went off to Cape Town, I really felt here I was an ambassador of the yeshiva even more. I mean, it helped to have Rav, Rav, um, Yossi Slotnik, who also was a Gush guy. But I felt I could s- serve a, a purpose. And even today, and I can say it in this context because you know, it's like-minded people, but I've, I've started for the last two years, I'm writing for a national UK Jewish newspaper. It's very Haredi, very right-wing newspaper. Ad Kach, it used to have pages in the back in Yiddish. Like most papers have the sports pages in the back. This one had the Yiddish pages in the back. And I'm, t- I'm, I'm secretly sharing Gush Torah um, very proudly, not under the Gush name, because they wouldn't appreciate it. I, I think the Rambam got away with it as well, not quoting his sources. I don't have to quote my sources. But I'm telling you, the teacher, the, the emissary of Amital's Torah is so, it's so pure and so full of love and so true that it doesn't matter where the audience comes from. It's being appreciated to an audience that probably never heard of our yeshiva and would never have understood it. But it's because he made me feel so special that I have now, you know, decades later, continuing the legacy of what he showed, both in the writing and also in my own teaching in the classroom and with my own students. I think I've definitely embraced that lesson and carrying it through as a proud, proud ambassador of the yeshiva. What's, what's the name of the newspaper? The Jewish Tribune. Okay, we'll I'll leave you for the Yiddish translation. Michael? Have I Michael? Yeah, um, Michael Belinsky. Hi. Uh, so I was in the yeshiva in 1974-75, when it was uh, much smaller. Uh, we weren't in the Beit Midrash yet. Um, and then um, also I had already graduated YU. Um, and then we came back, uh, so the year, it was during 1976. I think Rav Amital came to the States, may have been his first visit. Um, it was after a horrific tragedy at the yeshiva um, in which um, in a practice exercise against terrorists, someone had a loaded gun and um, one of the fellows ended up killing another uh, member of the yeshiva. Um, and it was obviously very hard in Ravami Tal. Um, and so we came to the States uh, and I was in Smichad YU at the time. Um, he stayed um, with the Khan family. Um, their son Toby had been in the yeshiva, Ellen Khan. Um, and Herbert, he stayed at their apartment, and Ellen sort of looked after Ravami Tal. Um, and we had this one, so 
we had this wonderful both Shabbat with him, and there were about 20, 25 of us um, who went to spend Shabbat in Riverdale. So it, it was a very intimate group. Our whole Kfutza from Chutzlar, it's, uh the year before had been 17 of us. Uh, so it was a very small group. But the, the real schut I had um, is that Ellen asked three of us um, to be in the car when we drove Ravami Tal back to Kennedy um, to send him off back to Israel. And it was just after, literally, we, we his last appointment um, was visiting and meeting the Rav Soloveitchik. Um, and so there were numbers of stories that have been uh, came out since then. We heard them, you know, in the car as such live uh, from Ravami Tal. Uh, among the things Ravami Tal asked the Rav was why was Rabbi Riskin, who was still in the States, why was he so successful? Uh, the Rav had a cute answer for that. Um, but we also had the opportunity to hear the story the Rav told about himself that uh, in various forms, Rav Lichtenstein has mentioned, mentioned it numbers of times, but what the rough told Ravamital, I could be in a, you know, people, a snowstorm and people would drive two hours in a snowstorm to come hear me give shear. But deep down in their hearts, they think I'm an Apicarus. Um, and and, and Ravamital shared that story with us. He had just actually heard that from the rub. But that whole experience of that trip to America, going to the airport with him, with Ellen Kahn, making sure that he had too much stuff. So she's getting people to take some of his gifts, you know, on the airplane. So it goes under their weight of their luggage as opposed to his uh, and everything. It was just that sense, again, what everyone has mentioned, uh, Rabbi Tarragon mentioned, just that deep sense of humanity and normalcy. Um, and that wonderful smile and his ability, and the way he told the anecdotes, and reported to us what the Rub had said, uh, with obviously tremendous respect, but also with a smile to, um, and, and, and tremendous affection. And that was really those, the week he was in the States was really a wonderful opportunity in a real small setting um, to get to know him. The story that um, Rav Benji told, so I have a corollary story, of a related story, and it speaks to his smile and it speaks to the charisma and it speaks to him making you feel embraced, even when he was pr- presumably chiding you. It sounds like I, I don't know if Benji's still here, Benji, but it sounded like he was saying, Matapo, like, what, why are you here? Why are you not in Israel? So I remember in the 80s, we didn't have internet, we didn't have VBM, so we had no connection with the yeshiva. So our only chance to reconnect with the Rosh yeshiva was dinner time. Dinner was always two weeks before Pesach, and the Rosh yeshiva came in for the dinner. So it was a good way to get all the alumni to come to the dinner. And Rav Wilkinson would speak in very, very lengthy fashion about very highfalutin issues. All the dinner guests had to hear the ideology of Hester, part three or something, whatever. Whatever you want to talk about that year. And then Rav Amitav would get up and he would read from these index cards in his pigeon English would be an overstatement. I'm sheikh lit Rome. His English was... A poor, I mean, he was re- reading mistakes and vowels and consonants. I am very happy to be here with you tonight at the Gush Dan. It was clear he was reading off of these index cards. We could use your money for. And then in the middle, he would always say, I would like to speak to my students in a little Hebrew now. 
and then he'd raise his finger. This is the only time we saw him. He would look at us with all that passion, with all that warmth, with all that charisma, and he'd say, Atem talmidim sheli, matem po barzot abrit, anachnu bonim et aretz, anachnu nishchatim belevanonam chayelim shanu, atem titbaishu lachem. Atem tzichem lavol laaretz, titbaishu lachem. And you could hear a pin drop. But miraculously, every single Talmud was sitting there mesmerized. Mesmerized. I mean, Yermia couldn't pull it off. I mean, Yermia didn't pull it off better. I mean, he was just lambasting us. And just, we wanted more. And somehow there was something unique about that look, that charisma, that warmth, that care, the, the mystique of who he was. And he'd la- latch into us for two, three, four minutes screaming at us. And then he'd finish and he said, Achshav, Bonirkod. And they all get into the middle and start dancing with him. <laughs> Who in their right mind could pull that off? <laughs> Rebuke people for five minutes at the top of his lungs. Achshav, Bonirkod. <laughs> Run and stream and hug him. So there was something, there was an it factor that Benji was speaking about. They just felt embraced. And the song, the smile, the, the humanity, you just felt it was a real human being. Even to this day, when I go to Ravamital's kever, I walk right up to the kever, I feel completely at home. I feel like I'm right there. I say to him, I, I feel his presence. When I go to Ravaran's kever, I'm like, I'm very scared. <laughs> I start out about 20 feet away, then maybe should I go further, if I make it over there. It's a very different experience. And the embrace that he gave us was, it was very, very... Complimentary. I'll share a, a couple of things. One, I think, is uh, familiar to all of us, but it's still, to this day, I, I find remarkable. And for me, it brought back the notion of emunat uh, chachamim, and that's the the very invitation uh, that uh, Rav Amital uh, made to Rav Lichtenstein to become the Rosh Hashivan, of course. Rav Lichtenstein said, no, we, we, we would have to do it as a, a co-Rosh Hashivan. And to watch how they um, shared uh, fully, completely, uh, all of the responsibilities from the Shir Klali to uh, uh, each Shabbat, they, they, uh, they, uh, they took turns and the mutual respect that they gave each other was just r- remarkable. It remains with me today. And I, I came out of a, a very political period in Chicago um, where I saw kind of things that I didn't understand. I, I had come into uh, Skokie Yeshiva at the time when Rav Aaron Soloveitchik was leaving. Uh, that was my introduction to um, uh, the Yeshiva world and orthodoxy in general. And I didn't quite understand what I was seeing as a, as a, you know, a, a, a young high school boy. Um, but I, I, I came to understand a lot more as I got older. And then, as I, as I said, to, to see this yeshiva in, in action and that somebody would so selflessly give up his, uh, his uh, malucha um, was, um, w- w- you know, was remarkable. The only other example that I know of is uh, uh, Male Adumim, and it's very likely that that, uh, that invitation that was offered there might have been uh, under the influence of, uh, of, a, of a previous generation. Um, so that's, that's, um, 
one item. A second is um, I, I actually didn't have all that many interchanges with uh, with Rabbi Mital. I was kind of indoctrinated that uh, you know the the, the Rosh Hashiva for the Americans was was Rav Lichtenstein, and Rav Amital was for the the Israelis. Um, uh, and so my approach to one of the two, I I, I went to Rav, Rav Aaron. But um, my first real contact was with him as the uh, Baltfila, and I'm, I wasn't one of these people that went back from year to year to for the davening on Yamim Noraim. But to this day, to this day, when I daven on the Yamim Noraim, it's Rav Amital's voice uh, when I'm when I'm davening. Well, echo, that's that's the voice that echoes in my ears. There was just something remarkable about uh, about his power as a shaliach tzibur that uh, that carried me, and I saw it carried the entire yeshiva that humanity that people have talked about before. That here's a person who's leading you in tefillah. Um, th- this is the person that you want to lead you in tefillah, um, because he was really representative of the of the tzibur. Third story. Uh, so Rav Amital with the the, Sh- the, the Shana Aleph guys uh, it was later in the year, but he met with each one of us. And I remember um, he asked me what my seder halimud was. So I I was proud of myself that I was doing something independent, uh, different than what everybody else was doing. And in the second Seder, I think I had an hour in the day that I went to the library to learn history. Because I felt that in my Shiva high school career, we didn't take Jewish history very seriously. So I was going to make up for it. And, and, and I told him, you know, I thought for sure he was going to give me a pat on the back. Oh, good, you know, you're making up for something that you, uh, that you missed. And he gave me Musser <laughs> straight. You know, he said, you know, do that, uh, you know, after the end of third Seder or do that on your own time. But this is your time to learn Bishkeda, uh, Gemara. And, um, and, you know, he didn't hold back. He didn't sugarcoat anything. Uh, and he kind of burst my, my bubble thinking, you know, I was uh, uh, thinking, oh, I, I was, I was broad minded here. And, and he would be uh, embracing of that. And uh, he wasn't going to allow me to be proud of myself, that his directness and straightforwardness uh, uh, came through. Um, and I, I don't know if that changed my, uh, my behavior, but um, it certainly made an impression on me um, that here's a person who, you know, lives uh, uh, a, a truthful life, says it as it is, says it out as, as, as he sees it. Rabbi Berman, I'll tell you that I was one of those people who did come back, actually, year after year for Yom Kippur. Um, and I was one of the first ones to buy the uh, CD when it came out uh, with all the uh, tunes. And I'll tell you that uh, I was absolutely mesmerized by the Yom Kippur experience in Ravamital. And uh, I think I came back, I don't know, five or six years in a row um, or something like that after Yeshiva. Uh, maybe even more, I don't remember. But um, I've never experienced Yom Kippur davening as, uh, as what I remember from Rav um, it, uh, it changed the whole experience. Sure. I'm not unique. Hi. Hi, everybody. I'm sitting in an outdoor cafe. I'm not sure I can be heard. 
Yeah, we hear good. you, Robert Wolfson. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Hi, hi everybody. Um, it, it, it's wonderful hearing all of these. Thank you, with Tarragon and uh, with Jonathan and everyone for, for sharing stories. Um, it's great to hear people who describe being at the Yeshiva in the 70s. I, I think I think of myself as uh, in some ways very lucky that I was one of the last generation of Talmudim to get to know him. My Shana Aleph was his 80th birthday. It was sort of like uh, the Chinese year of Ravami Tal. Like the whole year revolved around it. Many, many celebrations. I think I remember him uh, joking that perhaps when he was 81, they would stop making him uh, 80th birthday parties. And I, um, I was there for a year and then spent three years at university in the UK. And then I came back and by this time, I guess Ravami Tal was 84, 85 and was, uh, to really see he'd, he'd aged a lot in, in, in those years. And as uh, I think Rabbi Grauer uh, mentioned, uh, I was also extremely lucky and through no merit of my own to be uh, placed more or less next to uh, Ravami Tal for that year, which was a huge split. Um, I think a couple of things in terms of the memories that sort of stay with me. The first is sort of similar to what some people have already said, but with a, a different emphasis. Um, he took a lot of the a lot of the pressure out of things, a lot, a lot of the seriousness, the heaviness out of things which um, I think I'd been taught uh, either explicitly or implicitly to think about as very heavy things. So that the, the atmosphere of, of, the, of, of my high school uh, and I think even the atmosphere of a yeshiva is you've got to think about yourself very seriously and your career decisions and uh, who you're going to marry and uh, are you going to do smicha or are you not? And are you going to do move to Israel or are you not? And I, I remember, I think I absorbed from just his his, his uh, the way he would conduct himself and speak, but also sometimes explicitly that he would he would take a lot of the the heaviness out of these questions. And you know, things didn't need to be as um, as dichotomous for him. Uh, and uh, for me, it was a tremendous relief. Uh, to be able to sort of like imbibe some of that. Many years later, I, I read a quote from, from someone which I liked very much and which seemed to sort of capture something of Ravami Tal. It was a it was funny context. It was, a, I think it was an aid worker in some of the world's uh, sort of most disastrous uh, humanitarian zones who was asked by an interviewer, like, how, how, how do you keep sane amidst, amidst so much you know, terrible human suffering? And that the person said, um, I take what I do very seriously, and I don't take myself very seriously at all, um, which I, I've, I've sort of uh, taken on as a bit of a mantra to be able to like, you know, take what we do extremely seriously, but also to, to sort of you know, to be able to smile at ourselves and then look at ourselves with a little bit of you know, irony and, and humor. I think that was something I found very much in, in Ravami Tal. Um, the second point, I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this. Um, in, in the last few months, the months of, of COVID, um, uh, um, I've very much felt Ravami Tal's presence in terms of the, uh, the story of, of the Sinoka Bokhe, the crying baby. Um, I, I, I feel like in some ways 
that story is too, it, it, it's a tragedy that in some ways that, that we know that story so well that we almost can't take it seriously anymore. It, it's like almost like a Loba Shamayim He type story. It's been so used and so quoted that like, we just sort of smile at it. And I, I, I think that, you know, we maybe forget how many people there are, I guess I'm speaking of myself, really, not, not of others, how many people there are who didn't have our level of exposure and intimacy to Rav Amital and the yeshiva, who actually, therefore, you know, we downplay the significance of that story. In, in my own work, uh, I'm, I'm the JLIC rabbi at NYU in, in downtown Manhattan. Um, we, we sort of lost our community overnight. Uh, the university closed in mid-March. Uh, people went home. There were no more classes, no more, uh, no more university classes, no more shiurim, shabbatot. Uh, we essentially reoriented ourselves around providing a, a, a volunteer response to just the enormous need in, in New York City, whether hunger, whether age and isolation. And you know, if, if I sort of think of uh, the, the guiding image, it's, it's without a doubt Rav Amital's, you know, emphasis and re-emphasis and you know, repetition so many thousands of times of, of, of that story, which I guess sort of seems to have, you know, been quite a poetic parallel to the, yeah. to the upcoming Yaritzite. While we're waiting for the next speaker, I'll just share um, an interesting um, story in light of what Rabbi Berman said. Today in Yeshiva, they made a 70th birthday for Rav Meidan. Many of us were for Amitah's 70th birthday. So it was held outside in the square of the Yeshiva with large, I mean, social distancing, shir chazonish. <laughs> boys here and boys here. And it's really, really nicely done. And speakers and you know, very, very scaled down, but it's really nice. And essentially, one of the themes that a lot of the Rabbim spoke about is, and 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 Maidan, the contrast is so striking because he's so passionate and he's so opinionated and he's so fanatical and he's and he so strongly holds of his ideas. But wherever there are administrative yeshiva issues that have to be decided. He will only give his advice after excessively encouraging everyone not to listen to his advice. And whatever you say is Kodesh Kadashim, rather than whatever he says is Kodesh Kadashim. And of course, it's a testament to Rav Maidan. Um, but I think it's really something which Rav Amital was able to implant into the DNA of the yeshiva. Maybe Rav Maidan um, excels in it maybe more than some of the others, but there really is very little room for ego at any level in yeshiva. It's almost as if their tone hovers above the yeshiva. And, and creates a, there's very very I, I don't know the inner rooms and the inner conversations but there's there's very little politics or personality politics and ego in the way there may be differences of opinion maybe other limitations but so it's nice to to see that it, it's translating to the next generation. I'll add that he got something from Rav Lichtenstein today on his 70th birthday. He also gave Shir Koli and Tuchugim that are up on the YouTube channel and. Uh, and he was in the base medrash all day uh, preparing for these and there for Tomidim. So he took something from both of us. I'll follow up on uh, Rabbi Terrigan, just the connection between Rabbi Tal and Rabbi Meidan. The first time that I heard, again, that, that now very famous story of the child crying, 
Uh, I was in yeshiva from 92 to 94, and it was during Oslo, Rav Maidan had pitched a tent in the Mashbir and went on a hunger strike um, to protest Oslo and the peace process. And he spent, I think, a week and a half to two weeks outside the Mashbir in Yerushalayim, inside the tent, on a liquid-only diet, um, giving shiurim in protest of the peace process. And Rav Amital got up to give a sicha in the Beis Medrash. And everyone was kind of waiting to see. We knew that the Rosh Yeshiva were in favor of at least giving the process a chance, and they had spoken about it. Um, and he, and Rav Amital gets up, and we're waiting to hear, because he's going to address Rav Meidan. Um, and that's, the, so essentially, it's all, I mean, actually, all I remember from that speech, I'm sure there was more, but my takeaway, and what I remember from Rav Amital's Sicha, Neves Medrish, was he got up and he said, I don't agree with Rav Meidan and his politics, and I really don't like hunger strikes but I really love Rav Meidan. And then he told us the story about the baby crying. And he said, I taught my students and I value that this is Rav Meidan has heard the baby cry, maybe differently than me. And he went to do something about it. And for, again, sitting there and that, you know, 19 years old, and I think it speaks to what Rabbi Jagan had mentioned as well, that idea of being able to love someone and respect them, um, despite completely disagreeing with them, uh, is a, a very strong and powerful message and I think really does run throughout um, the yeshiva and its talmidim. I think like Rabbi Berman and Grau, I think a lot of, every year before Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, um, I really much, I, I channel much more um, Rav Amital than I do Rav Lichtenstein um, and try and figure out how to give people in the shul some flavor of the passion and the sincerity of, you know, a Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur experience that really is ever-present, um, you know, in, in our minds. I have to add one more word about this dominant. I love the fact that he repeated words. <laughs> it was so, you know, unbrisker, right? So unyeshivish, if you will. But he also brought with him, it was part of his personality, that sense of Mesorah. His father was a chazan, his grandfather was a chazan. If they repeated words, he could repeat words. And so we all, benemar, benemar, benemar. You know, I, it, it was countercultural. Uh, there was something very cool about this uh, old, uh, to me old, uh, European Russia Shiva who was countercultural in the way that, uh, you know, expressed through the way he davened. It made me, made me feel connected in a, in a, in a way to Mesora. Um, uh, that whatever, you know, maybe in ways much greater than, than what I got out of a, a Lumbus piece of, uh, you know, a, a sugya or shir. Look, Rabbi Berman, if I comment on what you just said, two comments and two different aspects of what you said. First of all, not only did he repeat words, but he skipped words and he got words wrong, which is not part of his aversion for false firmkite, but the fact he was davening by heart much of the time. And he was just, and it was a very authentic, passionate, real experience. He was really speaking to Akarish Baruch Hu. Um, I, I felt very often in his speeches on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, they say about the Levi Yitzchak that when he spoke to the Kal in Barditchev, he was essentially speaking to Akarish Baruch Hu and to the people. He was like Akarish Baruch Hu and then to the people. It would be an intermediary between God and people. And I, I felt that a lot with the Ramital Sicho, that he was actually talking to Akarish Baruch Hu, not just talking to us. 
and then interacting between the two and making a Kaddish Baruch very concrete and very palpable. But even in his davening, I felt, um, I, I sensed that um, whenever he got to parts about Am Yisrael, he would start crying. And when I, whenever I hit those parts of davening, I, I start crying as I remember his tears. But that's, that's just as a complimentary story to what you said. But your comments made me feel that one of the things I miss most about Rav Amitel is he had a very, very healthy barometer to help judge fake from kite from real from kite. And he had this phrase in Yiddish, I'd have to look it up, that his grandmother, his grandmother was very formative in his life. Uh, they slept in the same room, and she would polish his shoes. If you read the book by his faith, he had a lot to do with his grandmother. And she had some phrase in Yiddish, from his far rituals oin mitzvahs. There's some phrase there. Yeah, I remember that. An old phrase. Philip Rashia's envenomment mitzvahs or something like that. Right, right. And I think that's missing today, to be honest. I don't I don't I don't see people that have it. And I think there's a trend in our community towards polarization. And the easiest way to reaffirm our sense of firm kite is to just adopt chumros and, and be very careful about discarding them. Alternatively, some people have an allergic effect to false firm kite. I find that they, the pendulum swings too forcefully in the other direction. There's a lot of erosion and a lot of um, distancing from healthy. I think Ravami taught a very, very healthy barometer. As you said, Ray Berman, a masara, a firm kite, but without some of the fake Pietudness, preening, just to show everyone, like, why would you not want to repeat on Roshanim Kippur? Because there's 600 people in the rooms. It's a great opportunity to show everyone how firm you are. And rather than maybe from kind of express in the quiet of your own study. So I, I miss that a lot about Ravamita. I don't see too much of it in our world, that balance. Adam, you have what's that? Okay. Um, good evening and uh, good afternoon to everybody. Good morning. Um, it's really an honor to be with this group. And um, I wasn't planning to say anything, um, but uh, share a few experiences. Um, I think um, mostly um, they were sort of, he was in, in, in many ways, um, Rav Amital had a sort of un-Rosh un- Yeshiva side to him. He was he he was a heverner in in one sense very much gadluta adam sort of slabatka style and he liked uh, he always dressed nicely and he wanted the yeshiva to be aesthetic and um, wanted the bachurim to feel um, let's say a positive self esteem but he was uh, somewhat self-effacing. Um, I, I some of the experiences that I had were um, when my friend uh, Josh Berman got married and Rav Amital was the Roshish, was the Masada Kedushin and we were sitting and he was, I was one of the ADM and he said, uh, I was a young rabbi and he said, Adam, you pull it out, you know, uh, you know what you're doing, you know, he's you, sort of empowering me and sort of saying, you know, I'll step back and it was, uh, you know, I was very embarrassed by this, of course, but it was, uh, it was very, it was, it made me feel like he had confidence in me and that he didn't have to be the one at the center. Um, also, when I was uh, Shana Bet uh, in Israel in, in Yeshiva, 
um, I'd wanted to go to the army very much. And in the end, I decided to, to go back to, um, YU for a few years first before coming back to Israel. And I'd become very close with the, the Shana Bet guys who were, um, I guess it was the Shana Olive guys, excuse me, who had gone, were going into the army after Pesach. And I found out that um, I was there until Tisha B'Av and that Rav Amital and, um, um, what is, I've read his name, um, um, Roshiva of Otniel's father, um, Yedaya Cohen. Where the two of them were driving to Julis, I think, to visit the, the the soldiers. So I had the privilege of driving back and forth with them for about an hour and a half in each direction, and just to hear their their sichat chulin, which was very uh, there was Torah and there were just talking about the army and values and um, um, I, I, in a way something that Rabbi Tarek and what Mesh said before. Um, you know, my kids always knew all the years. I would always call Rav Lichtenstein before Rosh Hashanah and, and Pesach, and now I call Tova, and I would like shudder. You know, you could speak in front of 500 people and not be nervous at all, but to call Rav Lichtenstein and talk on the phone with him, it was a real emat. Ha, ha, I don't know what how to describe it, but it was something and and it was powerful. Not not you know a, a palpable feeling. I don't think it was a negative one, but it was a particular dynamic. Rav, Rav Amital was sort of much more kind of every man, man about his interaction. And um, I, I think that maybe carried over also into his approach to halakha, his approach to Am Yisrael, um, uh, not uh, sort of trying to be much more of a, um, with Amcha, with Amcha, it, with this Tami, being a Tami Chacham, etc. Um, um, also, I don't know, Mesh, do you remember this when Rav Amital did sort of a sabbatical for six months um, in, in America when we were back in YU? And he, he, lived, he spent a lot of time in Riverdale, where my parents lived and where I grew up. And uh, he would, we would just get together for an Oneg on Friday night. And um, it, it was interesting. At the time, I don't think we realized something, at least from my era. Our era was the early 80s. Um, it took Rav, Rav Amital years and years to really get over if he ever got over Lebanon. And he, he sort of came to America to help the yeshiva to learn English a little better, but I think he just needed to get away. Um, it's, it's really unbelievable how much he cared about every Talmud. And um, that whole experience was, um, was, was very difficult um, for him. And maybe, I, I hope this comes out, to me, it's a very positive thing, but other people, or certainly when, when we were younger in yeshiva, I think it was a little harder for us to understand. Rav Amital taught me that you can change your mind. Rav Amital re-examined his, his thoughts and his ideas throughout his life. And if you read his writings and you see his public behavior and you see his involvements, um, both as a educator and as a public figure, he didn't feel obliged to be you know, uh, foolishly consistent. He um, certainly um, developed and evolved. And um, to me, that's, that's, that's a human being again, but it's also somebody who is in a constant um, process of developing the relationship 
actually to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and to HaKadosh Baruch Hu's world. It's real, it's palpable, it's, it's dynamic, it's meaningful, and therefore you don't just stay at a plateau, but you're always engaging. And um, to me, that's an example from Rav Amital that I found um, very inspiring. Uh, thank you. Just to um, reinforce the important points that Rav Adam just mentioned, um, about Rav Amital changing his mind, I think we all realize, I'm sure there's others on this list, I'm interested if other people have other things in mind, but I think the two issues that we're exposed to is he changed his mind on the role of women's learning. In the beginning of his time in yeshiva, he didn't feel that it was that important towards the end. He was very, very strongly endorsing of the Migdalos project. And certainly his views on Zionism have changed and were changed in Ruf Cook's infusion Zionism. I'm sure of Adam, you could speak about that <laughs> at great length, but certainly the Lebanon war changed his views on of, of Cook's Zionism and Messianism. Um, evidently, I don't know the details, but evidently, there was a graduate student in some in some department, I don't know which which university, who prepared his thesis on Ravamital and his ability to change his mind. There was some student who actually wrote about that. And he showed it to Ravamital with a lot of pride and expectation. Ravamital read it quickly and said, I, I, I don't think you really captured it. And the boy went away feeling a little bit destroyed. And then Ravamital, I don't think this was cosmetic. He said, you know what, I changed my mind. I think you did a good job. And I, I think it was real. Again, the story is very sketchy. I feel I'll tell that story with great relish. The other point you mentioned about how Rav Amital lived loss very deeply. I, I encourage everyone to listen to Rav Lichtenstein's Hesped for Rav Amital. And one of the points that Rav Lichtenstein noted in his Hesped for Rav Amital was that Rav Amital invented or established the notion of a Rosh Hashiva feeling shchol for his Talmidim. And it's something we, I don't want to say take for granted because it's not something we ever want to take for granted. But we all know the stories about the Yom Kippur War and what it did to Rav Amital. And, and I, I saw the last, the last loss that Rav Amital suffered. It was a boy in yeshiva from Ephrat, actually. He died in a training accident, Uriel Liverant, Zechron Liveracha. And I was at the funeral with Rav Amital, and I was at the stage where he was still walking with, he was walking with his cane already. And I think he even had a comment like this. Is that something, I don't know if it was in a speech or he was saying it to himself as he was walking to the coffin, or walking to the body, you're saying, you know, I, something like, I thought I didn't have to go through this again, or, or how much more do I have to go through, or something. It was very, very raw about having gone through this nightmare and having thought, and now realizing that he has to go through that turbulence again. It was a very, very raw moment in front of the dead body, or in front of the parents, I forget exactly where. But that was clearly the, the comments that he had. I'll just add one more thing. Um, I, 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 a strong memory for me where, where was actually not in yeshiva, was going to Rav Amital's numerous times for Sudashli Sheet at his apartment in Givat Mordechai. And um, he really opened his home every Shabbat, whoever want, showed up there would be a beautiful Sudashli sheet. Um, I don't know how many of you had that experience. It was, it was very special. And it was, um, again, he was this Rosh Hashiva who let you into his family and, and said, I'm normal, you know, and uh, sort of um, 
it blended together. It wasn't bifurcated. You know, I have my image as the Rosh Shiva and then I have my, my home. It was sort of a, a fluid type of uh, experience. And um, it, it, um, I know uh, if you ever talk to Yehuda Mirsky, he spent lots and lots of hours uh, with Rama Amital at home and um, it had a profound effect on him. And, and the, the numbers of times that I had that experience were, um, very memorable and he was extremely engaging and, and personal and really showed his personal care. Okay, let's um, take some time to think about Ramitel this week. I'm sure the Shiva is going to produce a lot of um, shiurim and a lot of videos and a lot of information. There's a lot out there. And um, hopefully we can continue to, as Adam said, he taught us to continue to grow and uh, to feel confident enough to change our minds and confident enough to admit our limitations and confident enough to admit our mistakes and to admit our humanity. And that's what makes, I think, a Rosh Hashiva's or Revi's message enduring. As if it's a message for 18-year-olds and it's static, then you wake up one day and you're 38 and you have a Revi or 58 and you have a Revi. But if it's a changing, dynamic, human message, it doesn't have a prefabbed shape to it. Um, just has sincerity, authenticity, and tradition driving it, so I think it can adapt to different ages, different people, different contexts. Let's hope that we continue to adapt his message. And on a separate note, I want to thank Rev Friedman for putting it together, and of course everyone else who sort of the idea. And please, um, there's an open forum, so if anyone has a great idea for getting together, I think we all enjoy it. I think we all have a very, very busy schedule, so we don't want to overdo it. But um, let's try to find time and ways to speak with one another when it's not just the art side of a Rosh Hashiva or not just an immediate response to the aftermath of COVID, but in a way that we can just create a group just to share common ideas. So please feel free to recommend to anyone, myself, Ray Friedman, to put things together. Thanks, everyone. Have a good night. Yeah, thanks for doing this. These are really very special. Thank you very much. Sure.